American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Visit us online at ashp.cuny.edu. In this two-part podcast, Nancy Hewitt of Rutgers University speaks to New York City teachers about the role of female activists in a variety of progressive-era reform campaigns. This talk took place on March 27, 2007, at the Graduate Center. In her talk, she refers to images that are available in the podcast section of our website. The Progressive Era incorporates a wide range of problems and an equally wide range of solutions. The 1890s provided a wake-up call for many Americans. After two decades of feverish westward expansion, unparalleled industrial and corporate growth, contentious labor organizing, unbridled immigration and urbanization, and a serious economic depression, Americans might have been overwhelmed. Rather than succumbing to malaise, however, reformers throughout the nation looked ahead optimistically to the future, confident in their ability to solve the problems that threatened to fracture their society and culture. Indeed, the desire to address economic, social, and political concerns engaged a diverse array of people and organizations in all parts of the country, in all regions. Now, politicians, from mayors to governors, congressmen, presidents, are often highlighted in textbooks about the progressive era. Robert La Follette of Wisconsin, William Boer of Idaho, George Norris of Nebraska, Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson. Yet middle-class professionals, doctors, lawyers, teachers, and journalists, often led the reform charge, seeking to reassert their power over corporate oligarchs and machine-run political parties. At times, workers and their political representatives joined with middle-class reformers interested in improving employment and housing conditions, for instance. Yet labor union and immigrant aid societies also sought to speak more directly for the interests of the working class. And as many of you mentioned, socialist and communist parties also became involved in these kinds of working class, uh, this kind of working class organizing. Women, too, as we know, organized on behalf of social change with their goals and strategies rooted like those of men in their race, class, region, uh, sometimes their religion and nationality. Even some corporate executives supported regulations that would make businesses run more efficiently, allowing them to obtain a greater share of the market. Progressivism, then, was not a social movement of like-minded individuals pursuing the same goals. As Arthur Link's quote uh, reflects on uh, the handout this morning, that what united progressives was a faith in progress, the necessity for an ability of people to join together and apply human intelligence and will to solve assorted problems. And that's what makes this period from roughly the 1890s to 1920 perceived by historians as the progressive era. But there were various ways to organize a journey along the many paths to progressive reform. Many textbooks focus on presidential administrations, federal legislation, Supreme Court cases, and then move from there to state and municipal reform and the muckrakers and reformers who publicized problems and advocated change. Trust busting, conservation, pure food and drug, 
uh, public health, good government, are all highlighted in what William Chafe has called big P progressivism. Another perspective that we might label small P progressivism, however, focuses on workers, immigrants, women, African Americans, and explores grassroots efforts to create change in local communities, as well as institutional activities, mutual aid societies, settlement houses, and labor unions focused on improving the lives of Americans outside the economic and political mainstream. Of course, many individuals and groups help to bridge big P and small P progressivism. Jane Addams, the founder of Hull House in Chicago, worked directly with immigrant families and sought to clear local neighborhoods of dead animals, garbage, and sewage, but she also forged ties with local, state, and federal politicians, advocated women's suffrage, and joined the Progressive Party in 1912 and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in 1909. Mary White Ovington of Brooklyn shared many of Adams' concerns. Like Adams, Ovington was active in the Settlement House movement and was among the founders of the NAACP. She also labored on behalf of local working women through the Brooklyn Consumers League and was active in third-party politics, though her experiences with race and class inequities led her to support the Socialist Party rather than the Progressive Party. Ida B. Wells shared Ovington's outrage at racial discrimination and her radical politics and joined Ovington, Adams, and W.E.B. Du Bois in the founding of the NAACP. But Wells used her journalistic skills to arouse indignation against lynching, used the courts to challenge racial discrimination in transportation, and demanded the right to vote for black women. Yet she also supported local efforts like the Phyllis Wheatley Home to aid young African-American women migrants to Chicago. In order to focus more fully on the diverse ways that various groups of progressive era activists responded to the critical issues of the day and to do it in 40 minutes, uh, I'm going to take a problem-centered approach. That is, I'm going to focus on four major problems uh, in this period, corporate trusts, conservation, immigration, and working girls, and explore the multiple ways that people understood and addressed these problems at the federal, state, and local level. Trusts were one of the main concerns for many progressive reformers. They were blamed for a wide range of problems from low wages and hazardous working conditions to tainted food and medicine and political graft and corruption. When Theodore Roosevelt ascended to the presidency following McKinley's assassination, he immediately chose to use his executive authority to resolve the nagging problems caused by giant trusts, or at least some of those problems. In 1902, the President instructed the Justice Department to bring suit against the Northern Securities Company under the Sherman Antitrust Act, a law that had been rarely used against big business since its passage in 1890. And as you know, in 1904, the Supreme Court struck down the Northern Securities Company, ruling that the firm illegally restrained competition in interstate commerce. With this victory, TR affirmed the national government's power to regulate monopolies that violated the public interest. Overall, he initiated 25 suits under the Sherman Antitrust Act, including those against the Beef Trust, the Tobacco Trust, and Standard Oil Company. Of course, even though Roosevelt prosecuted avaricious and unscrupulous capitalists, 
the president did not oppose big business, as many of you suggested. Coming from a wealthy background, he counted himself among, quote, the friends of property. However, he distinguished between good trusts, which acted responsibly, and bad trusts, which abused their power to raise prices and hurt consumers. Indeed, he termed journalists who spent their time exposing corporate and political corruption muckrakers, and he didn't use that term as a compliment, but instead to suggest that these journalists were looking for problems where none existed. The 1902 political cartoon castigating the Beef Trust foreshadowed the critique offered by Upton Sinclair in his muckraking novel, The Jungle, which one of you mentioned uh, using in your class. The Jungle portrayed the lives of impoverished immigrant workers in packing town, that is Chicago, and the deplorable working conditions they endured. The novel was intended more as a tract advocating democratic socialism than conventional reform. But outraged readers responded more to the vivid descriptions of the shoddy and filthy ways the meat industry slaughtered animals and prepared beef for sale than to Sinclair's argument for socialism. The book revealed in grisly detail how the meat cut up for sausage would be dosed with borax and glycerin, dumped into hoppers, and made over again for home consumption. Not only were consumers revolted by this portrayal, but the largest and most efficient meatpacking firms had good financial reasons to support reform. They were losing money because European importers sent back tainted meat. Congress responded to the outcry by uh, consumers, but also by the support of some of the big beef companies, and passed the Meat Inspection Act in 1906 which comforted consumers and provided a way for large corporations such as Swift and Armour to eliminate competition from smaller firms who couldn't afford to in implement the new federal processing requirements. While consumers en masse had an impact on the passage of the Meat Inspection Act, their outrage was most effective when channeled through local, state, and national organizations like Consumers <laughs> Leagues. The National Consumers League was founded in New York City in, 19, in 1890 and led by reformer Florence Kelly. Local chapters were then established around the country. The National Consumers League focused more on labor conditions than uh, on tainted meat, but they did join efforts to regulate the meat industry as well as other food and drug companies. <coughs> on an even more local level, Far removed from high politics and big business, neighborhood women used what consumer clout they had to force local butchers and shopkeepers to lower prices on everyday food items. One of the most well-studied of these local consumer protests is the kosher meat boycott of 1902 organized in the Lower East Side, Upper Manhattan, the Bronx, and Brooklyn. Here, Jewish housewives wielded their traditional role as domestic managers to justify collective organization and mass protests when the retail price of kosher meat soared from 12 to 18 cents a pound in May of 1902. And uh, an increase like that, a six cent increase, a 150% increase in one basic food item would have ruined many household budgets of families living close to the edge. Local butchers, fearing the anger of customers, 
actually refused to sell meat for a week to try to pressure the meat trust into lowering their prices. But when that failed, local housewives on the Lower East Side called for a boycott of the butchers, broke into the kosher shops, threw meat into the sewers, and accosted women who tried to purchase goods from the boycotted stores. Now the Jewish Forvitz and the New York Herald covered the boycott, rabbis supported it, and the protests spread throughout the city. Although such boycotts, which occurred in numerous other cities aimed at other food items, often succeeded in the short run, in the long run, these local consumers couldn't compete with corporate wealth and organization. Nonetheless, these boycotts provided an important sense of empowerment among immigrant women and encouraged them and their daughters to participate in other forms of collection, collective action like mutual aid societies and strikes. Next one. Conservation is another major problem addressed by progressive reformers. In Theodore Roosevelt's second term, he took a strong stand for conservation of public lands. The president charted a middle course between the strict preservationists advocated by John Muir and the wise use approach of Gifford Pinchot. He reserved 150 million acres of timberland as part of the national forest, which delighted the preservationists. At the same time, siding with Pinchot, he authorized the expenditure of over $80 million in federal funds to, conduct, to construct dams, reservoirs, canals, and other utilitarian projects largely in the West. <coughs> of course, like trust, conservation efforts took many forms. Geneva Stratton Porter, the author of this book, who was uh, an advocate of John Muir's preservationist view, chose a more artistic mode of activism. Born in 1863 in Wabash County, Indiana, the youngest of 12 children, Jean spent her childhood on a farm, roaming through the fields, and spending the greater part of her days watching birds and observing nature's rhythms. After marrying at age 23 and giving birth to a daughter, Stratton Porter discarded the traditional role of housewife and mother and took up photography. She then worked with her husband as her assistant, hiked into the wilderness of Indiana to film wild birds in Indiana was a wilderness in the early 20th century. She soon built a reputation as a first-rate nature photographer. In addition, by 1914, her home on the aptly named Sylvan Lake had become a wildlife sanctuary. Caterpillars laid their eggs on her furniture, butterflies flew through the house, uh, injured birds were cared for inside by Jean Porter Stratton, her husband, and their daughter. They shared space with other animals, with moss. They left plants growing in the household so these various animals could feed on them. Uh, eventually, the family couldn't even use their cast iron stove because guinea pigs were nesting in it. Meanwhile, fortunately for Stratton Porter, since obviously she uh, didn't have much domestic skill, uh, <laughs> fortunately for her, her breathtaking photographs were regularly appearing and being paid for in such magazines as Outing and Ladies Home Journal, and she published as well a series of novels and children's books, like this one, A Girl of the Limberlost, that trumpeted the cons conservation message. The works such as The Song of the Cardinal, Freckles, A Girl of the Limberlost, Stratton Porter revealed her vision of the harmony 
between human beings and nature. She urged readers to preserve the environment for plant and wildlife so that men and women could lead a truly fulfilling existence on Earth. Of all the conservationists, even though you've probably never heard of her, this woman photographer we reached the widest audience of any of them in the progressive era. Stratton Porter wrote five of the 55 books that sold over a million copies between 1895 and 1945. And several were made into Hollywood films, although you may not have seen any of them recently. In 1923, one commentator lionized her contributions to the conservation movement by comparing Stratton Porter to Roosevelt. Each, he said, has swayed the millions. Each has influenced human lives in the present and for the future. Yet concerns about conservation did not only emerge in rural and wilderness areas. The children who played in the streets of American cities, mostly working class and immigrant or African American, were also desperately in need of fresh air, pure water, and healthy animals. Middle class women's clubs, as many of you mentioned, worked to improve slum housing, establish public services such as playgrounds, parks, and libraries, and set health standards for food. In this case, women's clubs were especially concerned about the notoriously impure milk supply, which was a particular threat to infants whose working mothers could not breastfeed them because they had to go to work. In many cases, local women reformers fought for legislation and regulation at the same time that they organized pure milk campaigns, well baby clinics, and other events to meet the immediate needs of urban families. In northern and southern cities, black and white women established daycare centers and kindergartens that housed health clinics, provided pure milk, and taught working class women, quote, habits of cleanliness that would advance the interests of their own families and the larger community. Now to justify these activities, women claim the right to be, quote, municipal housekeepers. As journalist and suffragist Greta Child Dorr explained in 1900, women's place is home, but home is not contained within the four walls of the individual house. Home is the community. The city full of people is the family. The public school is the real nursery and badly do the home and family need their mother. These municipal housekeeping activities transformed urban life in the early 20th century, but also engendered conflict among different classes, races, and nationalities. Immigrant mothers who walked to the settlement houses to receive pure milk and attend well baby clinics did not necessarily want to embrace the lessons in middle class domesticity that were served up with these material benefits. African-American women, on the other hand, often found themselves excluded from white women's organizations and movements. This was true in settlement house programs, but it was true beyond the civic improvement campaigns. In 1913, for instance, the National American Women's Suffrage Association tried to keep Ida B. Wells and other black suffragists from marching alongside the White Suffrage Association in a massive suffrage parade in Washington, D.C. Chicago's black suffragists were put at the end of the parade line, sort of like the back of the bus. But Wells disappeared from the black suffrage organization, 
walked through the crowd and slipped into the white Chicago delegation as it passed her on the parade route and remained in that position for the rest of the parade, which suggests both that this National Suffrage Association was willing to abide by racial discrimination in order to advance their cause, but also that at least some white suffragists in Chicago accepted Ida B. Wells as one of their own and were willing to march with her. Now, Southern progressives were often even more blatant and persistent in their racism. In Atlanta, Georgia, municipal housekeeping, public health efforts, and racism were deeply intertwined. And this is a political cartoon from the Atlanta Constitution following a tuberculosis outbreak. In 1912, white club women and black public health and male public health officials agreed that black domestics were the primary source of contagion. And in this cartoon, they're arguing that all the porch screens, garbage cans, pure water, good sanitation used by whites could do little against the dirt and germs that supposedly were brought into homes by African-American servants. African-American women in Atlanta responded to such accusations in a variety of ways. Domestic servants who had tried to unionize in the city on several occasions insisted that they were not the dangerous vectors of disease as they appeared in cartoons such as this. They also noted that the location of their homes near city dumps and other unsanitary sites was the fault of residential segregation and certainly not a fault of their own choices. Middle-class black club women responded alternately by praising black domestics as respectable citizens and by distancing themselves from working class and poor blacks whom they too sometimes viewed as morally suspect. In 1908, African-American women founded the Atlanta Neighborhood Union, a combination mutual aid society and <coughs> settlement house in an attempt to bridge these class differences within the black community. The union offered a variety of resources for working women, including a health clinic to treat tuberculosis and other contagious diseases, and its leaders campaigned successfully for street paving and sewers in black neighborhoods. The willingness of Atlanta's white leaders to respond to the demands of the neighborhood union, however, may have had more to do with their fear of contagion from servants than with goodwill or shared convictions about civic improvement. In most northern and western cities during most of the progressive era, the primary concern of well-to-do whites was immigrants rather than African Americans. Legislative efforts to restrict immigration into the United States went back to the 19th century when native-born residents began to blame immigrants for a variety of social and moral ills. Although varying somewhat by country of origin, immigrants were often perceived as innately predisposed to vice, whether prostitution, drugs, alcohol. Social scientists of the late 19th century validated these prejudices by categorizing darker-skinned immigrants as inferior races. In the late 19th century, as you know, Asians endured the harshest treatment among immigrant groups. First came the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, and then in 1908, President Roosevelt entered into a gentleman's agreement with Japan, which redu reduced Ch Japanese immigration into the United States. State laws, particularly in the West, restricted the rights of Japanese immigrants even further, 
And in 1917, the proponents of immigration restriction partially succeeded at the federal level by winning passage of a law that banned illiterates uh, from entering the country. And obviously, the definition of illiteracy was uh, ambiguous enough that many people could be uh, restricted uh, or sent back regardless of their ability to read and write in their own languages. Yet most progressive reformers did not focus on immigration restriction or exclusion as their main goal, at least in the 1890s and early 1900s. Instead, they hoped to improve the lives of immigrants already in the country. Some viewed immigrants as enriching American culture and society through a recognition of its multicultural character. Others sought to Americanize the immigrants in hopes they would adopt the ways of the native-born middle class. This photo of a singing class at Hull House uh, by Lewis Hine is unusual for Hine, who was a photographer uh, for much of his career for the National Labor, Child Labor Committee. Uh, he more often tried to capture immigrant children laboring in factories, mines, sweatshops, and tenement houses. But here he gives us a glimpse of the efforts of settlement house workers who are standing around the seated immigrant women and their children to foster cultural understanding across ethnic differences. Of course, it'd be helpful here in terms of what message we can get from this photo if we knew whether they were singing folk songs from their native homeland or America the Beautiful. Um, that we can't be quite sure of, but clearly this is an effort to bring groups together across cultural divides. Still among American-led organizations dedicated to assisting immigrants, even if they're teaching them uh, American the Beautiful, settlement houses generally embrace the belief that cultural diversity strengthened rather than weakened the national character, even as they also sought to educate immigrants in American ways of cooking, dressing, living, and so on. Staffed mainly by women, settlement houses became all-purpose centers. Not only did they provide recreational facilities, social activities, and educational classes for neighborhood residents, they also launched campaigns aimed at obtaining legislation for minimum wages, maximum hours, restriction of child labor, consumer protection, and safety regulations in sweatshops and factories. Like Retta Child Door, settlement house residents embraced the notion of municipal housekeeping, reasoning that they could only protect their own households from the chaos of industrialization and urbanization by cleaning up community health and living standards. The settlement movement worked closely with other women's organizations to improve the lives of immigrants and to advance the public influence of middle and upper class women. One staunch ally in many campaigns was the Women's Christian Temperance Union, founded in 1874. Though often viewed today as a conservative organization for its stance on prohibition, in the 1890s, the WCTU supported a broad and often progressive agenda under the leadership of Francis Willard. Under Willard's direction, the WCTU and its nationwide chapters supported women's suffrage, anti-child labor laws, and labor unions. Like Adams and Doerr, Willard developed her agenda around the porous boundaries between public and private, demanding temperance and prohibition as a necessity for what she called home protection. Husbands and fathers who drank excessively, she argued, abused their wives and children. At the same time, the quality of family and public life would be improved, she argued, if women received the right to vote, 
and if young children completed their educations before going out to work. Although Willard died in 1898 before progressivism fully bloomed, she influenced a generation of progressive activists like Jane Addams. With Willard's death, however, the WCTU leaders withdrew much of their support for social reform and concentrated instead on the single issue of temperance. At the same time, the male-dominated Anti-Saloon League became the major force in the prohibition movement. Established in 1894, the League grew out of evangelical Protestant uh, evangelical Protestantism with Baptists and Methodist ministers leading the way. The group had particular appeal in the rural South, where Protestant fundamentalism flourished in this period. There, the Anti-Saloon League managed to persuade towns and counties to enact laws abolishing bars and saloons, the local option laws that I'm sure you're all familiar with. By 1907, two-thirds of the counties in the South had gone dry. Between 1906 and 1917, 21 states, mostly in the South and West, banned liquor sales completely. Nonetheless, during the first decade of the 20th century, the average consumption of beer and liquor rose. So despite all these dry counties and states, Americans were still drinking more, rose from two gallons per person in 1900 to 2.6 gallons in 1910. This rise alarmed prohibitionists, and now the concern was not confined to the South. Middle-class progressives in northern cities who identified much of urban decay with immigration saw the tavern as a breeding ground for immoral activities, whether that was political graft, politicians coming in to buy votes for men, or whether it was men drinking too much and therefore being inefficient in the workplace. <coughs> Waging their campaign nationally in 1913, the Anti-Saloon League convinced Congress to pass the Webb-Kenyon Act, banning the transportation of alcoholic beverages into dry states. After the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, reformers argued that prohibition would actually help win the war by conserving grain used to make alcohol and saving soldiers from intoxication. Uh, probably didn't succeed in either of those, but it did, of course, mean that the 18th Amendment was ratified in 1919 that finally extended prohibition nationwide. The prohibition campaign, which flourished initially because of middle-class women's concerns about home protection, had been dramatically transformed by the time national prohibition was imposed. Moreover, the ideas and values that led to the success of the anti-saloon league campaign, especially the critiques of immigrant life, were by then shared by na many native-born Americans who advocated immigration restriction and or exclusion, who also gained influence, greater influence in the years surrounding World War I. For immigrants, it thus became increasingly important to forge institutional institutions and organizations to advance their own interests. Of course, immigrants had formed uh, religious and secular organizations to help out uh, members of their own national communities throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. But such associations became even more important as the surge of Southern and Eastern Europeans and Asian immigrants at the turn of the century converged with the rise of a new American nativism. The Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society pictured here was one of many such organizations that emerged or were revitalized during the progressive era. They provided guidance and assistance to newly arrived Lonsmen, 
and also launch public relations campaigns to reassure native-born Americans of their value to U.S. society. For immigrants, ethnic organizations and community-based mutual aid societies provided practical advice and material resources that were critical to individual and family survival. They also offered a rich array of cultural opportunities, plays, song fest, dances, religious ceremonies, celebrations of traditional holidays, and language classes in Yiddish, uh, Hungarian, Polish, Italian, etc., for American-born children. They also provided immigrants seeking employment with information and contacts <laughs> with employers. Now, for women, this was particularly important because many came from countries where they did not work for wages in their homeland. Family and community networks were thus critical to them finding jobs in the United States. Many of these women were young, the daughters of immigrant families whose lack of children and husbands made them readily available for paid labor. Yet wage-earning women, especially young women, caused great anxiety for their families and for the larger society. And this was true whether young women were recently arrived immigrants or native-born whites and blacks coming in from the country to the city. Indeed, the problem of the working girl, as it was called, loomed large across the American landscape and became a pressing problem for a wide array of reformers and activists during the progressive era. Now, the most common image we have from this period of the working girl is the factory worker and particularly women laboring in sweatshops. And certainly this is one of those issues where you can link present-day concerns, as you mentioned earlier, with uh, circumstances and conditions at the turn of the century. Whether employed in a tenement workshop is shown here, where domestic and industrial chores, young children and adults shared space, or in an industrial sweatshop, and this is actually the Triangle Shirtwaist Company factory, uh, where they worked alongside men and beyond the protection of home and family, working girls were considered at risk. But was the risk moral, economic, physical, or political? Did the dangers emanate from employers, from predatory men, crowded tenement households, urban squalor, foreign cultures, lax, moral, lax morals, or the young women themselves? And were those high-risk working girls the innocent and naive native-born daughters moving to the city, or the African-American domestic servants isolated in households filled with lascivious white men, or the immigrant daughters either trapped in low-wage industrial employment or caught up in the pleasures and dangers of urban dance halls and street life. And what were the most viable solutions to this whole array of problems? <coughs> Now, some progressive activists focus literally on working girls, that is, on child labor and the special dangers faced by those who should be gaining an education rather than a wage. Groups like the National Child Labor Committee mentioned earlier sought laws to restrict or abolish child labor and used parades, photojournalism, state and congressional investigating committees, and other means to inspire outrage over the physical and moral risks engendered by employment of children. The Women's Christian Temperance Union supported legal restrictions on child labor, but they also launched their own campaign in the 1890s, which focused on what they considered a more devastating threat to young women and girls' sexual abuse. And this is a table of legal ages of consent in selected states, north, south, west, 
between 1885 and 1920. And this chart of the ages in 1885 was circulated by the WCTU to its local chapters throughout the United States as they launched a campaign to raise the age of consent. I mean, it's a stunning list. I, it's hard to imagine. I've tried to find out why Delaware even bothered to set an age if the age was seven. I assume it must have been some incident, episode, crime, scandal uh, that led to this, but uh, even states that set it at 10 or 12, obviously, from the WCTU's perspective, this was way too low. Horrified that the age of consent for sexual intercourse in most states was 12 years old or younger, the WCTU organized its local and state societies to pressure state legislatures to raise the age of protection to at least 16. Over the next three decades, so this is a very long campaign before you get to the ages you see in the 1920 column, they held hearings, petitioned state legislators, publicized sensational cases of seduction and rape, and used every means at their disposal to convince male legislators to change the law. And for the WCTU, it was as much through this campaign as through their work on temperance that WCTU leaders came to see the wisdom of Francis Willard's early support for women's suffrage, because they believed that if there were more women legislators, or at least women voters, these state laws would have changed much more quickly. Although states in every region of the country had embarrassingly low legal ages of consent for girls, the fight for reform was most difficult in the South. There, the resistance to reform was led by white male politicians who insisted that young women, especially young African-American women, would use a higher age of sexual consent to damage the reputations of upstanding white men. Yet reformers, both opponents of child labor and WCTU activists, pointed to the incredibly young ages at which girls, not young women, but girls, and especially African-American girls, were being hired for domestic labor, making them vulnerable to sexual abuse by sons and husbands in the household. Let's go back to the age of consent. Although by 1920, as you can see here, all southern states had raised the age of sexual consent for girls, most did so under a statute, and that's the ones with the asterisks next to them, under a, uh, a statute that was distinct from the rape statute and established punishments that were far less severe than that for rape. And even then, it proved nearly impossible for African-American girls to employ these laws successfully against white men. Moreover, by the 19-teens, many progressive organizations had grown more anxious about the economic, social, uh, and sexual autonomy of young women, particularly female adolescents. Concerns about prostitution had long hovered over working women whose wages were nearly always insufficient for self-support. But with the opening of dance halls, amusement parks, and other entertainment venues geared towards heterosexual courtship, moral and sexual dangers loomed larger than ever. And in response to these changes, women reformers fought for a juvenile court system to control delinquency among young women and men. Now they sought court intervention not so much for punishment as to keep youthful offenders away from what they considered more hardened criminals. 
One of the first juvenile court systems was established in Denver, Colorado under the guidance of Judge Ben Lindsay, and Lindsay would only sentence youthful offenders after he checked out their homes. He examined their home life, and if he found poverty, joblessness, and temperance, then he would use his authority to remove delinquents from dysfunctional homes and make them wards of the state. Bless you. Of course, he got to decide what was functional and dysfunctional. In addition, the clients, the young men and women themselves, did not always see eye to eye with reformers or court personnel about the virtues of the juvenile court system. Middle class progressives sincerely believed that they were providing delinquents with an opportunity to turn their life around. However, many of the youthful offenders hauled into court did not view it that way. Many young women appeared before the magistrate because their parents or neighbors didn't like their choice of friends, uh, didn't like their desire to frequent dance halls, or suspected them of having sex outside of marriage. Activities that violated middle class and even many working class social norms then had become criminalized, even in a, if in a less coercive and punitive manner than that applied to adults. So on the one hand, they're trying to raise the age of sexual consent, but at the same time, they're hauling young women into criminal courts who are having sex without coercion. Many young working women had other ideas, of course, about how best to improve their lives. Some sought out or were recruited by the more progressive unions, the Industrial Workers of the World, the International Lady Garment Workers Union, and you all know about the major garment industry strikes in Lawrence, Massachusetts, Patterson, New Jersey, and of course, New York City. They also make clear, these strikes, that at least some middle-class and upper-class progressives, for instance, those who joined the Women's Trade Union League, could look beyond their own class interests in shaping a reform agenda, although, of course, there are still tensions between working-class and middle-class women. And some progressive reformers did not automatically, who didn't automatically support unions nonetheless supported some of their demands, such as shorter hours, and worked vigorously to get legislation and court cases through that would shorten working women's hours to 10 hours a day. Of course, working girls, maybe some of those in unions, some of those who, who never joined a union, also viewed birth control as an important weapon in their fight for economic advancement and personal independence. Again, middle-class women like Margaret Sanger, who opened her first birth clinic in Brownsville, spoke directly to the interests of working women, in part because of the economic precarious of her own young life. But it was working women and working-class families who really pushed the movement for birth control and women's sexual autonomy, at least within the family, and middle-class and, uh, and upper-class women who, feared, who generally feared women's sexual autonomy and led opposition to birth control. Ultimately, however, it was the physical safety of working girls that re-cemented the bonds between middle-class progressives and laboring women. As mentioned earlier, on March 25, 1911, the Triangle Fire in which 146 women were killed electrified New Yorkers and horrified workers, union leaders, and progressive reformers across the country. Like 9-11, the fire was visible from long distances, and pedestrians and workers, shoppers and policemen, firemen and tourists saw the horror close up, including women leaping to their deaths, as you see here, from the 10th floor of the locked Ash Building. 
Soon after, reports blared from newspaper headlines, investigations were launched, ministers, labor leaders, politicians, club women, union leaders, and even some industrialists expressed outrage and demanded action, and protective labor legislation, including restrictive fire codes, were soon passed by the New York City Council and the New York State Legislature. However, even at this moment of unity among progressive forces, labor activists worried that legislation was not enough. Workers also needed the collective power of unions to ensure enforcement of the law and to extend its protection to other workplaces. Now the final image I'm going to use this morning is a political cartoon castigating the United States Radium Corporation, a New Jersey manufacturer of luminous paints that required the purification of radium from carnitite ore. So these women are uh, extracting radium from the ore, creating luminous paints, and then painting objects with this radium-based paint. Now, for fun, many of these young women workers painted their nails with the product they produced, but they also painted telephone dials and were told to wet the brushes with their tongues to keep the bristles sharp. Uh, and some of them even painted on lipstick uh, before they went to meet their boyfriends at dance halls late at night so their lips would glow in the dark. Um, of course, by these means, workers were exposed to deadly levels of radium poisoning, but the company attributed to the high death rate among their workers to other causes, including syphilis, a charge they used consciously to smear the reputations of these young women workers. This 1926 cartoon is one of many critiques of corporate indifference to workers' health and safety in the years following the Triangle Fire. I think what's notable here is both the image of the working girls of the 1920s, which although the company tries to smear them, here are shown as sort of respectable uh, working girls and fashionable. But clearly, 15 years after the Triangle Fire, working girls still faced many hazards in the workplace uh, although most, like radium, were less spectacular, if no less deadly, than the Triangle Fire. When working girls in the radium plant sought relief, they didn't turn to middle-class reformers or unions or even legislators. Instead, they went to the media and to court. And after long and very costly litigation, the five surviving radium girls who went to court won a $10,000 settlement each. Uh, but more importantly, they won the right of individual workers to sue corporations for damages from, quote, provable suffering. So they did set a precedent that lived long after the radium girls. By the time the radium girls received a modicum of justice, the passion for reform was waning, even as new and more pressing <coughs> problems were about to disrupt American faith in progress in the future. The progressive persuasion that had characterized American reform at the turn of the 20th century consisted of a multiplicity of overlapping, disparate, and sometimes antagonistic efforts to reorder the political, social, moral, and physical environment. Reformers did not establish a tightly knit organization or a fixed agenda. Leaders were more likely to come from the middle class, but support came from rich as well as poor, depending upon the particular issue and workers, immigrants, and African-Americans organized on their own behalf as well, often rooting their efforts in different visions and definitions of progress. 
Of course, many Americans did not embrace the progressive persuasion as conservative opponents continued to hold on to power and compromise insurgent reforms. Nevertheless, by the end of the second decade of the 20th century, a combination of voluntary and official, local, state, and federal interventions had cleared the way to regulate corporations, increase governmental efficiency, and promote social justice. Now, of course, I've only been able to touch on a few of the many paths to progressive reform today, but we'll have a chance to explore others this afternoon. Thanks. <laughs>